Um, just a couple of comments uh, before we kind of get going uh, as normal. I was looking at the financial report this morning that's in the worship folder, and uh, like a lot of churches in the, in the uh, summertime, the giving is a little bit behind, and um, nothing's been said about giving since I've been around here, so I'm going to say just a little bit, okay? Um, and that is this, that um, many churches think in a situation like you're in, kind of intuitively, well, uh, the former pastor's gone away, and we've got to rent a pastor for a while, and uh, it'll be a while before we have another pastor, and therefore our expenses are down. Wrong. Expenses go up in an interim. Uh, there will be significant expenses with your search committee. Uh, they're paying me $100,000 a month, so you really got to cover all of that. And uh, it's kidding, kidding, okay? Uh, but your search committee, and then you'll, have, you'll move a, 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 probably a family here. And, and moving is very expensive today. Those are, so just don't think expenses go down. In fact, they go up in an interim, okay? So just remember that. And secondly, I've been meaning to say for a while, and I would have said this last week, but the, the lady from uh, Love, Inc. said it, and I didn't want to say it twice the same week. So um, I hope uh, all of you appreciate the music ministry you have here. For a church this size, uh, you punch way above your weight. Uh, you've got a lot of wonderfully talented musicians here that are apparently willing to give of their time and expertise, and I hope you thank them uh, regularly uh, for that, okay? All right. Um, so we're in Luke 11 again. You think, is that the only chapter of the Bible this pastor knows anything about? And, and that's not the case, but it looks like it. I know that. We're in the dinner party dialogues, uh, times when Jesus would go be invited to dinner like this one. And he would go in and he would notice something that uh, elicited a sermon or something right in the middle of the dinner party, often rebukes, in this case, the Pharisees. He's pointing out the faults of the Pharisees. And the reason I'm doing this is that I'm so much like them. And I think some of you probably are as well. Um, so if the shoe fits, wear it, is what I'm saying. And so today I want us to, we'll read 37 um, to uh, 44, and then we'll look at verse 44 under the thought, the problem of leaving a legacy, the problem of influence. And um, the reason um, I, I'm couching it that way is hopefully to make it more relevant for all of us. Um, uh, Corey, thank you for reading the, the Old Testament reading in Numbers. I mean, that was a strange passage, wasn't it? And, and it, it leads right in to the text for uh, today. Um, so, um, there are other sermons. If you're new to uh, Shehalem Valley, this is uh, one in a series, and the other parts of the series are on the church website. Um, and so Jesus has gotten to the point in this passage, we'll see, of pronouncing woes on the Pharisees. He's pronouncing judgments on them. Uh, he's saying, look, guys, uh, there's a coming judgment if you don't make some serious changes in your lives. So let's pray, and we'll read, have a look at it. Lord our God, uh, thank you that your word is living and active and relevant and sharper than a two-edged sword. It, it addresses us in our needs. Uh, it points out to us that we have a need for Jesus, and then it says we can have Jesus if we have enough faith uh, to give ourselves up to you. And so I pray that you'll give us that faith. 
I pray you'll use a wretched, sinful, crooked stick to show the narrow way of the Lord Jesus. Lord, I pray that the Spirit that inspired these words will illuminate them to our understanding, that you will come and touch us uh, and, and, and breathe new life into us and a, and a greater degree of life uh, than, we've, than we've ever known. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Luke 11 at verse 37, we believe the Bible is the Word of God written, the only infallible rule of faith and practice. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him, so he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness, you fools. Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to the Pharisees, to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you Pharisees! For you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you're like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. Amen. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but God's word won't fade. It'll abide forever and forever. Our text today is verse 44. Woe to you, for you're like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. So from time to time you hear people talk about leaving a legacy. Um, what impact am I having? What influence am I having? Will I be remembered? I think I first came to think about leaving a legacy when years ago uh, in the, in the uh, press was talking about one of our presidents and, and they were saying, well, he's concerned about his legacy or this legislation will be the, the biggest part of the legacy that he will leave. And, you know, my response was, why didn't he just do the job and let legacy happen, okay? But, but he's kind of uh, uh, governing with, with a view to, to history. Um, not like presidents and CEOs of big companies, but we also uh, are concerned about legacy and, and being remembered and having an influence. Um, um, I think the rich and the famous are more concerned about that. Did I change uh, music? Did I change uh, the movies and drama and things like that? But we're more concerned with things like the impact on our children and grandchildren and the community in which we live. Um, what's happening in verse 44 is that Jesus is telling um, the uh, Pharisees that they're leaving a bad legacy. He's telling them that their impact and influence is for the bad. Really? Um, it's like you said to a, one of the most conscientious mothers you could imagine, a mother who's praying for her children, strategizing about raising her children, doing everything she knows to the nth degree to do good to her children, and somebody goes to them and says, you're ruining your children. You're messing your children up. You're destroying them. Really? Yeah, that's what he's saying. You're corrupting your kids. 
It would be devastating to say that to a mother. Matter of fact, the universal parental neurosis, right, is I'll be a bad parent. And we're worried about that. I'll mess my children up so badly they can, not even God can make them recover. It's a little lack of faith in that, okay, but that's the universal parental neurosis. The Pharisees were conscientious. They were conservative. They were strict. They were popular. They were influential. And they were a reform movement. And they thought if you had asked them, we are doing the absolute best thing for Judaism. Judaism is going this way, and it should be going this way, and we're trying to grab Judaism and take it the right way. We're trying to do good for them. But they were wrong. They were dead wrong. And once again, in this passage, we shall see why. Now, to really understand this text, and you've got to admit, this is kind of a weird text. I mean, most of us, if we're reading this passage in our daily devotional lives, we get to verse 44 and we think about it for half a second and we go on to verse 45. I mean, it's kind of like, what? For you're like unmarked graves and people walk over them without knowing it. Are you kidding me? All right. Let me give you some background in the Old Testament and the New Testament, and then I think it will be very, very clear. And the Numbers 19 passage that Corey read is the background to this. And to get into it, I want, us to, I want you to think about Joseph, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. And when he was about to die, he said, Don't leave my bones here in Egypt. Take them up to the promised land. Really? Your bones? Okay. All right. And then think about that text in the New Testament that you've read, I don't know, many, many, many times if you've been a Christian very long. And it says about Jesus' burial place that he, went in, he was placed in a tomb that was cut in stone in which no one had ever been laid. Have you ever puzzled about that text? I mean, I've been a minister since 1976. I've done a lot of funerals. I've never put anybody in the ground where somebody had already been laid. You know what I mean? I mean, you think about that and you think, I don't get it. So how do they go about it? I've always wondered. I mean, I really have. So Sally and I happened to be in Israel in uh, 17, yeah, 2017. And we were out, and, and if a person was of means, they would, and, and it, they would, have a, they would dig a cave into the rock, and there would be this central area in the cave. And off the cave, there would be these little, um, what would you call them? Plate, huh? Cubby holes <laughs> where you could lay a body. And so when Uncle Bob died, you'd take Uncle Bob and put him in one of those places. And what would happen? Well, without being too graphic, you'd come back in two or three years and there'd be nothing but bones. And you'd take the bones and you'd put them in a box that was called an ossuary, and that's where Uncle Bob's bones would be kept. Okay. So then what would you do? Well, when the next uncle died, you'd put him in there and you'd reuse it. Oh, they reused them. Yeah, they did. And so the big deal about Jesus was he had put in one that had never been used. Okay. Now, some um, Old Testament uh, background. 
You don't have to read very much in the Old Testament to realize there's a very strict difference between that which is clean and that which is unclean. Not so much literally clean and unclean, but ceremonially clean and unclean. That God divided foods between that which was clean and unclean, and conduct between that which was clean and unclean, and people could be either clean or unclean depending upon what they were doing. And why is that? Well, there's several reasons. God is out to teach, the, you know, think about it, in, in, in the biblical religion, you've got the, the, the first really big monotheistic religion. Uh, all the nations around were polytheistic, they had many gods, uh, God for this and God for that and God for the other thing, but Israel had one God that was interested in all areas of life. And, and so he wanted to teach them that he was holy, that he was unique, um, and, and that there was the unholy, uh, and that the world was fallen and in need of redemption. So in order to teach the difference between the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man, he, there was this distinction in the Old Testament between the clean and the unclean. And, and secondly, God was trying to teach his people that they needed to be clean. They needed to be different. They needed to be what we sometimes call his peculiar people. And thirdly, I think really importantly, he was trying to teach them that there was a need for sacrifice, right, and cleansing and atonement that in order to, be, to move from the category of unclean to the category of clean, something had to happen, which was often involved death and blood and was a direct foreshadowing of Jesus. And so they've got this uncleanness that's, pervasive in the Old Testament in, or in many, many, many places. And then you come to, to Numbers 19 uh, that's printed there for you in your worship folder. And it talks about getting, uh, becoming unclean by virtue of touching a corpse or touching a grave. Right? Did you get that? Uh, in Numbers 19 at verse 11, whoever touches the dead body of any person shall be unclean for seven days. And if you look at verse 16, whoever in the open field touches someone who was killed with a sword or who died naturally or touches a human bone or a grave shall be unclean seven days. And then in verse 18, um, it, it talks about a very similar thing. And, and this uncleanness could spread, right? It would spread from person to person. In Haggai chapter 2 it says, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, yes, it becomes unclean. So this uncleanness would come from there were other ways too, but this uncleanness is talking about would come from touching a grave or a body or bones. It lasted seven days. The uncleanness could be removed by a ritual washing. I won't go into all the details. You would take water and ashes from the, from the uh, sacrifice that had been slaughtered. You would use hyssop and you would get this solution and sprinkle it on people. You remember from Psalm 51, purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean, wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. And that's all a foreshadowing of becoming clean by the substitute sacrifice of Jesus Christ and being washed in His blood. So, 
A lot of background, okay? Background about bones, background about tombs, background about clean and unclean and becoming unclean by touching a, a dead body or bones or somebody who's touched a dead body or bones. And so we come to the New Testament uh, setting, okay? The Passover was celebrated yearly. It was one of three great annual festivals that the people of God were required to celebrate. They needed to remember at the Passover, what, their deliverance from Egypt. And, and they needed, therefore, in the remembering to remind themselves of their debt to God, that they really owed everything to God. Uh, their existence as a nation would not be without God. The Passover could be celebrated where? Just in any synagogue? No. The Passover had to be separated, celebrated. <laughs> celebrated. They had to separate themselves before they celebrated. They really did. You know, sweep out all the leaven and all that stuff. But they had to go to Jerusalem. You read that in Deuteronomy 16. It had to be celebrated in Jerusalem. And so to get there, people would make pilgrimages to Jerusalem. And Jesus did that. As a matter of fact, when he was crucified, he was going up to Jerusalem at the time of the Passover. You remember that probably. It wasn't just any time on the calendar that Jesus went to Jerusalem, that last time, and got crucified. It was the Passover time, right? So people wanted to get to Jerusalem clean, ceremonially clean, ceremonially able in the best way possible to celebrate the Passover. And if you touched a grave or bones on the way, you became unclean seven days and you messed the whole thing up, right? So what they would do is go and put a, a whitewash, I don't know, white paint, something, and they would paint the tombs and they would paint the graves so that people would not inadvertently touch one of the tombs or graves or a dead person or anything associated with death and so they would be clean, and so they would get to Jerusalem and be able to separate, celebrate the Passover. And so now Luke 44, 1144. You are like unmarked graves, which mean men walk over without knowing it. You, Pharisees, are making people unclean. It's like, remember the illustration I used earlier? It's like... Uh, you went to a mother who's the most conscientious, self-denying, trying to do everything she can, and he says to the Pharisees, you're not only not helping, you're hurting your spiritual children. Nothing could have been more devastating for a Pharisee because it's the exact opposite of what they wanted. Wow. Wow. He's saying to them, look, in the way they stress purity, purity by keeping the law, they're actually making people impure and unclean. They are contaminating, not cleansing. But they thought otherwise. They would say, we're not contaminating. Jesus said, yes, you are. Yes, you are. And the people did not realize, not only the Pharisees did not realize what they were doing, the people did not realize that by coming in contact with the Pharisees, they were becoming unclean. Because the Pharisees were so popular, they were so uh, exalted in the culture, they, they were the, the good guys that were trying to get them back on track. 
They thought that the Pharisees knew how to be close to God and get others close to God. Contamination, the thought of contamination by contact with the Pharisees was not on their minds at all. But listen, there are things like that. Um, you can get contaminated with radioactivity by just getting close to it. And you don't even know it. Right? Years ago, people were contaminated with blood that was tainted with HIV because they didn't know. We didn't know, you know, and contamination came unknown. You eat food with some kind of chemical that shouldn't be there, and you just don't know. You don't know it's a problem. Air with pollutants in it. So he's saying, you may not realize it, but you're contaminating people. You're not cleansing people. And it was a contamination that I want to separate it into two types. It was a contamination of character, right? Because if you had said, looking at the scriptures, what are the Pharisees like? Um, Jesus would have said, well, they're proud. Certainly they're proud. You remember the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector? The Pharisee says, looking up to heaven, God, I thank you like I'm not like other people. I tithe and I do this and I do that and I'm a good guy. Accept me, God. And the tax collector beats on his chest, won't even look at God, and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So the character flaw, the contamination was pride, was hypocrisy, was self-righteousness. And those who came in contact with them tended to be like them. Bad company corrupts good morals, and it does. So this is comparison he makes, and then there's the contamination of character, but there's also contamination of teaching. You see, the Pharisees thought that, the, that heaven could be attained by keeping the law. They had reduced the law to something manageable, you know. They forgot sins of omission. I think sins of commission, where I do bad things, are, 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 I, I got a lot to deal with in that, okay? But sins of omission, things I fail to do, I mean, that's where it goes off the charts in counting sins and sinfulness, right? And, and, and the Pharisees just forgot that and exaggerated their own righteousness. And they taught a false righteousness, self-righteousness, and a false gospel, salvation by works. And the crisis that ensued was just this, right? They were cut off from the true Passover. They were cut off from the true Passover. Who is the true Passover? It's Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7, it says, Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. Jesus is the Passover in, in the final and full sense. And, and they're cut off from him because of their view of how to get to heaven by self-righteous good works. They don't see that they need a righteousness that's not their own. The... Uh, French commentator Godet says, in contacting the Pharisees, men think that they will be blessed and are contacting those who can show them the way to heaven. But in reality, they're becoming infected with the spirit of pride and hypocrisy and self-righteousness. So what does this mean for you and me? Okay? Well, watchfulness of myself and others. Am I contaminating other people? Well, surely you say I'm not. I'm in the PCA. Well, 
you know. We're not there yet, you know what I mean? Um, watchfulness of others, are they contaminating me? Calvin says this passage is a warning about who we listen to and follow. Some of you are familiar enough and old enough with uh, Roman Catholic teaching that, I mean, when I was a kid, there were Roman Catholics kind of to the right of us and across from us. And, and uh, in those days, a book that was acceptable for a Roman Catholic to read had a little uh, imprimatur uh, on the title page or somewhere very early in the front and basically said, it's okay for Catholics to read this book. And whether you agree or disagree with the standards they used, at least they were trying to watch over the spiritual intake of their flock. And what We used to talk about this when I was a pastor in, in Alabama, and I said, you know, here's the problem we've got today in trying to shepherd the sheep. Three clicks of the mouse, and our flock can be reading the rankest heresy in the universe, and we will never know, and they will never know. You say, well, preacher, are you trying to kind of warn me and make me careful about what I read? I really, really am. I really am. Not every religious leader, not every religious teacher, not every religious book can be trusted. Not all religious groups are right. Everything must be filtered through the screen of the scriptures. We must be Bereans. You must at least ask your elders and your pastors and those that have walked the, the, the path a little longer and have seen some of the errors. You, you, you say, well, well, I was unaware. They were unaware. They didn't know. They didn't see it. Read the Bible. Start there. <laughs> then ask other people if you're interpreting it right. Here's a question. I've got actually four parts of the answer to my question. How can I know if I'm making people unclean or are they making me unclean? And my first point is this, and, and this is where I've got four parts, and this is really important. Examine your standards for correctness in religious matters. Examine your standards for correctness in religious matters. Now, I've already given myself away, but let me tell you some things that you hear with in great frequency among evangelicals today. Well, the standard is what I think or what seems natural or normal to me. It's very much in keeping with the spirit of our age when people say, well, if there's a God, he must be like this or he must do things like this. Well, friends, no, God does not have to bow to your thoughts about what he must do and be. When Adam fell, we like to say he fell on his head. <laughs> He cracked his spiritual skull. Our thinking is fallen. To the law and to the testimony, to the prophets, to the scriptures we must go. What seems right to one person will seem wrong to another. 
The Proverbs say there's a way which seems right to a man, but the end thereof is the way of death. So what I think is not a sufficient standard. Well, then you say, well, what about my theological tradition? You know, not me, but us. What about if it's what we think? Well, that's helpful, and that's an advance over the previous position, but theological traditions differ. And what evaluates them? What checks them? To what can I compare them? And obviously the answer is the Scriptures. Thirdly, people say, well, the standard is what the Holy Spirit tells me. Well, in a sense, that's right. In a sense, that's right. It's very popular for people to say, well, the Holy Spirit told me I was supposed to leave this church and go to another church. Did He really tell you that? The Holy Spirit told me I was supposed to kill my neighbor's dog. Really? Hmm. How do you know what the Holy Spirit tells you? I pray, Lord, let the Spirit that inspired this word illuminate it to our understanding. When people say, well, the Spirit told me to do X, Y, or Z, and it's not in accordance with the Word, I get nervous, and you should too. All that is is way of theologically dressing up. It seems to me that it's like this. It is the Scriptures, the Word of God written, the Word of God interpreted by the tradition of the church. You've got to believe it. There's such a thing as false religion. And false religion must be identified and condemned. That's what Jesus is doing here. We live in a day and age where it's considered bad form to say they are wrong. Jesus wouldn't have done well in this day and age. Because he looks straight in their face, right in their dining room, right in the middle of their dinner party, and said, you're making people unclean and you don't see it. The relativism in our world today is rampant. You know, this my truth, your truth, his truth, her truth. If nothing is wrong, then we don't know what's right either. Right? If you, if you can't say X is wrong then you cannot say not X is right. And we struggle with that as a culture. What really is the gospel? How can a person be saved? How can a person be right with God? Is it by the works of the law, as the Pharisees say? Is it by being good enough? Well, we can't be that good because God requires a perfect righteousness. Is it by faith in Jesus Christ? Yes, by grace you're saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. How can I, I'm talking, how can I be saved? How can I stay in good standing with God? By the works of the law? No. In Galatians 3, Paul says, Have you who begun by Faith and grace, are you going to now be perfected by law? May it never be. From first to last, our salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in 
Christ alone. So, are you being contaminated by teaching that you're in contact with? Does it promote self-righteousness? Does it inculcate a works mentality? Does it diminish your zeal for holiness and service? Do you have this kind of dichotomy in your thinking? God saves me and accepts me by grace alone through faith alone. But if God is going to really love me, I've got to do a lot of good works and very few bad things every day. Yeah, he accepts me, bare acceptance on the basis of the gospel. But if he's going to really love me, it's based on my performance. Friends, that's not the gospel. That is not the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus loves. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever believeth in him would not perish but have everlasting life. We don't earn the love of God by our performance. We accept it and receive it by faith. What spiritual legacy are you leaving? Like the Pharisees, pride, self-righteousness, unbelief? Or like Jesus, humility and faith? Jesus left a legacy. What is his legacy? Well, if you looked in the book of Revelation, you see these wonderful images of a number that no one can count, some from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, redeemed from hell and sin and death, redeemed for life with God in glory. How, did he, how is he going to get that legacy? How is he going to get it? By humility, he humbled himself to the point of death, even the death on the cross. You see, it's the death on the cross. It's the death on the cross and the resurrection from the dead and the defeat of death in that resurrection that guarantees the legacy that he's leaving. He gave us a reminder in this supper here, right? Of what he did on behalf of his legacy. So that those in that number that no one can count will remember and recommit regularly. So I, I want to ask you if you're willing to recommit to be a part of his legacy, his living legacy now. Are you willing to do that today? That's what worship, covenant renewal worship is, is like. You come and you renew covenant, renew commitment to be his. Maybe you've never done that. Would you like to be part of his legacy? He wants you to be. He wants you to confess your sins. He wants you to repent and believe the gospel. If you believe him, if you entrust yourself to him, if you love and follow him with all your heart, soul, and mind and strength, you'd be a part of that legacy too. The door is wide open. Wide open. It's not just kind of like open a little bit and the good people slip by on the edge. <laughs> it's open wide so the sinners like me and you can walk in. This is a problem, this problem of how to leave a legacy. The Pharisees didn't know how to do it. But you do, because you know the gospel. Let's pray. Lord our God, um, forgive us that we are...
so much like the Pharisees. So much like them. I pray that you will inform us through your word what they were really like and help us to avoid what they were like and help us, Lord, to embrace what you're like and be conformed to your image. In Jesus' name, amen.